On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about daylight saving time and why an Ontario politician wants to get rid of it. It's not just because you lose an hour of sleep once a year and everyone hates that. There are other reasons. We'll tell you what they are. We're also going to be talking about the Supreme Court, not of the states. We know all about the Supreme Court in the states. No, the Supreme Court of Canada that we know nothing about in this country. Why is that? Once again, we're going to explain, and we're going to be talking about language and whether it's possible to learn a language well enough to speak it with natural people who speak that tongue naturally in the span of 24 hours. Apparently, it is possible. We're going to talk to someone who's done it with a bunch of languages. How? Well, stick around and you'll find that out too. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. An MPP from Ottawa, a provincial politician from the Ottawa area, has announced that he's going to be introducing a bill in the next few days, next few weeks, to abolish daylight saving time. And when I first heard that, I said, okay, he, like me, probably just hates losing that hour of sleep once a year. Uh, No, seems a number of studies over the years now have said that it's not just a pain in the butt to lose that hour of sleep, but it is also for some people, perhaps for many people, medically harmful. That's what the science is apparently telling us. Okay, so I got thinking about that one and it got stuck a little bit because I'm thinking losing an hour of sleep, how medically harmful could losing an hour of sleep once a year be? Well, let me bring in Dr. Richard Saitoak. He's a neurologist, he's an author, he's a speaker, he's written about this. Uh, He joins us now. Dr. Saitoak, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Um, look, I'm sure like you, like me, we're not fans of losing an hour of sleep that one time a year, but how is it harmful to us? Well, it's, it's got a lot more to do with uh, our health and our, our, our physical health and our mental health than just losing an hour of sleep here and there. Um, it, it, gets us, it gets our circadian clocks all out of whack, um, and so it leads to increased heart attacks, um, Strokes, accidents, suicide, depression. I mean, there's a whole list of things that, in uh, diabetes, uh, uh, obesity, etc. Um, it, it really puts us out of whack, and I think that's the basic issue. Okay, so let's let's go into this a little bit. You wrote a great piece, and by the way, people can read more even after we're done here. You wrote a great piece in Psychology Today. Uh, back in March, so you know earlier this year when we were talking about this or when it was being discussed, and right, right, again, change the you, clocks. You talk about the circadian clock, and a lot of people, you know, when they hear about things like the circadian rhythm, they think it's some sort of uh, you know hoo ha that people, you know, but there there really is a thing here um, that really does impact us. Take a few moments if you can and explain what this is and why this is a real thing. Every cell in our body. Beats to a beats to time, all right, and it follows a master timekeeper in our brain in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and that is an intrinsic clock. If you pay, if you put people in a cave and watch them uh, with no no cues of light and dark, and you and you measure when do they go to sleep, when do they wake up, when are these when do, when are they inactive, when are they active. That runs, that natural clock runs about 25 and a half hours, okay? So every day, the sun must reset our biological clock to keep, it, keep us in sync with the rotating planet that we evolved on. Don't forget, we've been here for 200,000 years on a rotating planet 
we grew up in in periods of light and dark. I mean, it's only very recently, it's only since the 20s, 1920s, that we've had electric light, where factories started going around the clock, where uh, the, the clock itself drove us, drove our activity, rather than the natural cycles of the seasons and the night and the day. So we've got three clocks. We've got this circadian clock, and circa, the, the, the name circadian just is from the Latin, circa, about, Days a day. It's about a day. And so that's our natural clock is about a day. And every day, the sun must reset our brain clock. So you've got the circadian clock. You've got the, the, the sun rising and setting every 24 hours. And then you've got this social clock of school, work, um, television, Netflix, that's, that, that's, that's also driving our behavior. So all three of these things need to be in sync. So when we, when we move the clock forward one hour or back one hour, we're not just inconveniencing ourselves for a day or two. We're getting all those other clocks out of sync. And this is what causes a lot of, of uh, physiological distress. In us. But does, does the so body so not... Let me jump in for a sec, because does yep. the body not, when we do other things, does the body not adjust? Why would our body not adjust after a few days of this to realign the clock to be in sync now with our new reality? Because you're asking it to do, really do something that it's not meant to do. Like when we travel, uh, you know, east or west, on, and, when we, and, and have jet lag, well, we, we recover after a day or two of jet lag. But this is more insidious. Because um, basically it's like, it's as if we've, we're, daylight saving time has thrown us into a new time zone, but it hasn't allowed our body time to adjust to that. So it will adjust, but there's a price to pay for it. And this is why a number of people, like the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, is strongly um, recommending that we, we do away with, with daylight savings time. And it's not so much that, uh, that it's we we are in daylight or or standard time. It's the switching that's the problem. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Doctor, as we're talking about this, some of these studies, the numbers are startling. Heart attacks go up, car accidents go up, emergency room visits go up, depression goes up, strokes go up, suicide go up. I mean, this all we're all talking above, about the days yeah. after daylight saving. Is there any other possible explanation for it? Could it just be the natural changing of the season? or could the, Is there anything else that we can point to, or are we sure this is what it is? We've, we, for, for you know, 200,000 years, we've been accustomed to the natural changing of the season. It's only since the advent of electric light and the mechanical clock that we've gotten away from being attuned to the natural changes of the season. So the problem is that we have three clocks. Uh, we've got the social clock that's telling us to go to work, go to school, do this, do that, um, you know, work, play, eat, socialize. We've got our internal biological clock, the circadian clock, and then we've got the sun clock that's overhead and giving us our cycles of night and day of that varying length throughout the year. And we want to have all three of those in sync. And right now, we don't. Um, and when you force us, when you force human beings to switch 
back and forth between these two times twice a year, it really creates quite a uh, Mm. stress physiologically. And this is what people are finally starting to realize and respond to. So your politician is one of the smart ones who's (laughs) trying to get us on, get get, Canada on uh, standard time. In the U.S., several senators have introduced bills to get us onto permanent daylight savings time. It doesn't really matter so much which one it is. You, we just have to pick one and stick with it. Um, is this, I must is, say, though, that... Yes? No, is it... I'm going to say, is it more pronounced, though, now, because of the fact we always hear that we are an exhausted people anyway, that we don't sleep exactly enough? that all these problems are much worse in people who are chronically sleep-deprived. And that accounts for, I don't know, what, what would you guess, the majority of the population. Yeah. Uh, we, stay up, we stay up late binging on Netflix. Uh, we don't go to bed. You know, I tell my medical students, I said, you know, if you have to study for an exam, go to bed and set an alarm in the morning. To wake up early. Don't stay up late at night because your memory's going to be affected. You're not going to retain material. Huh. You need to get that sleep. This is based on sunlight, as you've said a few times now, and on the, on the time clocks. What about people who live in parts of the world where they have long stretches without sunlight? Do we see evidence that they struggle? Well, actually, there aren't, contrary to popular belief, there aren't periods of time when, where there's no daylight or where there's constant daylight. Um, like at the Arctic Circle um, in, mid- in uh, mid-metallic uh, I think it's like 75 degrees north. North, it's, it's as far as you can go where the people are actually living. They still get um, a few hours of twilight or light a day, and so it doesn't take much light to reset our circadian clock in our brain. Um, but we must have a regular rhythm, and so even at people who are living at these far northern latitudes, uh, like the Shetland Islands, um, way up in the, in the Arctic Circle. Um, they, 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 they fall in step with the Earth's natural rhythms. And that's it really all it does. Really takes. It really does make me wonder, as you're describing all this, though, that, I mean, we have so many people that work shifts or work not always the same shift, where they're, you know, they work night shift for a time and then day shift, nurses, doctors, how much we're doing to people's health, if this is all correct shift about how much is, damage we're doing. Work is, yeah, shift work is actually appalling. It's the worst thing you can possibly do uh, to have you know, somebody work, you know, the, the morning shift and move them to the evening shift and move, move them back and forth. Um, it's fine to work a night shift, but my recommendation is to employers is to have people do that for long periods of time, if not permanently. Keep them on a regular schedule. We need the regularity. You wrote, as I say, now, you... so many of us are sleep deprived. Yeah, well, for sure. And as I say, you wrote this great piece in Psychology Today, and I would encourage people to read it because it really is very well done and very it really helps to explain even further. Um, and one of the things then, and we only have a second or two left here, if the science is all telling us that this is bad for us, that daylight savings is harmful, it's not just inconvenient, it's harmful, what's the downside to ending it? Why is there reluctance to do so? Well, it's, up, it's in the hands of politicians, and you know that they don't listen to anybody, um, and, they're, and they're not terribly intelligent. So the fact that your politician is proposing this is rather remarkable, and I applaud him or her uh, for doing this. It is. Uh, it's a fascinating topic. I had no. I was completely agnostic to this before getting into this story because I really didn't know anything about it. But it really is worth looking into because uh, there is there's there's obviously more here than um, 
as I've said a few times, just losing an hour of sleep. Dr. Richard Kreitoek, I really appreciate so much. Or Saitoek, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. And remember, uh, go to bed. Go to bed, exactly. Not right now, though. Wait till the end of the show and then go to bed. Doctor, thanks for doing this. Uh, Go look up his piece. You can find it. Uh, The headline is, Too Many Reasons Why Daylight Saving Time is Bad for You. It was from March in Psychology Today. Easy to find online. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I would be very surprised, shocked, in fact, if at some point over the past couple of weeks, you have not found yourself in a conversation with someone about Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Amy Coney Barrett or something connected to what's going on with the Supreme Court in the United States. And if you're one of the few that has not been in one of those conversations, there is almost no way that you haven't seen news reports or heard people talking about the death of the former justice or the nomination of the proposed new one. And if all of that fails, and you've been sitting just in front of your TV watching Netflix, so you've not been tuned into the news at all, you probably still know about Ruth Bader Ginsburg because there's a Netflix documentary about her that's on there right now. Point is, you know a lot, almost for sure, you know a lot about the U.S. Supreme Court. So here is your challenge. Name for me right now, just take five seconds, I'll give you the time. Name for me one justice on Canada's Supreme Court. One. Uh Uh-huh. I thought so. Uh, It's not like this court has no impact on our lives. It has a lot of impact on our lives. Many controversial issues are decided there. And yet I'm betting that probably 5% of the people listening right now were able to throw out a name when I asked that question. And that 5% might be high, which made me wonder, why are we so aware of our neighbor's court and apparently so unaware of our own? Philip Slayton is an author. He is a lawyer. He he once upon a time clerked for the Supreme Court of Canada. He's written a book called Mighty Judgment, How the Supreme Court of Canada Runs Your Life. He joins me now. Philip, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. How are you? I'm great. Let me ask you a question. When I say 5% of the audience may or may not have been able to name a Supreme Court justice from Canada, you think I'm high or low on that one? I think, Scott, you're probably pretty accurate. I mean, there are one or two justices on the court that have a fairly high visibility, but nothing like, of course, the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. So 5% sounds about right to me. See, I'm guessing that even if I said name, if I asked people how many justices there are on Canada's Supreme Court, people wouldn't even know that. And the answer, by the way, is nine, for those who don't know, not like the states. But it's just, it's stunning to me that we are so unaware of our own court here. And I'm wondering why you think that is. Well, let me just first say that you're you're absolutely right about the ignorance uh, in Canada of the Canadian Supreme Court. And it's a matter of some great concern, because as I've often said, and I've often written, the Supreme Court of Canada is probably, if not the most important governance institution in Canada, certainly the second most important. It's far more important, for example, than parliament or provincial legislatures. And since 1982, Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Supreme Court of Canada has decided a number of major, what I would call, policy issues in this country. For example, medical assistance in dying, uh, abortion, and so on and so on. And so it's so important and so powerful, it's remarkable that the average Canadian citizen of voter doesn't really know anything about it, as you've said. Now, why is that? I think there are several reasons. Uh, One is the nature of of Canadian society in general. Uh, In my most recent book, uh, Nothing Left to Lose, I I write that the Canadian population in general, are exceptions, of course, in general is deferential to authority, 
It accepts expertise. It doesn't challenge uh, authority or figures of authority. It's, it, it's inclined to go along for the ride. Now, that is, is both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in the sense that if Canadians are told to do something, for example, wear masks, they're likely to do it. But it's a bad thing in that it deprives the society, the population, of a really vibrant political process. So it's, part of it then is the nature of the Canadian people in contradistinction to the nature of the U.S. Uh, people of the United States. As I say, both a good thing and a bad thing. So that's one reason. Another reason is the way judges are chosen. I mean, in the United States, the president, as he's just recently done, nominates somebody to be a judge. It goes to the Senate Judicial Committee. Normally, there are extensive, lengthy hearings, perhaps not in this case, but normally lengthy, uh, extensive hearings, lots of publicity, lots of debate. It attracts attention. And then the third reason I think I would give is the reclusive nature of our Supreme Court. The judges tend to think that they should be, if not anonymous, close to anonymous. That is not the case in the United States. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you mentioned, was famous for being a public figure. We have no such judges in this, this country, and they don't seem to want to do that. And perhaps one further reason, and that is the failure, by and large, of the media, particularly print media, to seriously uh, and in a thorough way cover what the court does. So there's a whole bunch of reasons. Interesting. Um well, yeah, because we know, I mean, I, I would suggest that there's no doubt that we as a country, we have um, no shortage of interest in the justice system. I mean, heaven knows if there is a case where there is a miscarriage of justice or a perceived miscarriage of justice, people in Canada are every bit as angry as people anywhere else. And, you know, I, I think back to uh, what was the one, the, the the woman in London, the London area who murdered the little girl with her boyfriend and was moved to a minimum security prison. People went nuts and appropriately so. You look at it and you go, yeah, there's no shortage of interest in the justice system. And yet this most important court just seems to be, eh, eh whatever, well, it's there. Yeah, no, I agree with you, Scott. I mean, there's certainly some some particular cases, particularly those that have dramatic facts, attract attention and attract passion and, and emotion. Uh, but that's different from people being really interested in this extremely important institution. As, as I say, it's a very important. The Supreme Court of Canada... Uh, is perhaps next to the Prime Minister of Canada, who chooses our judges, of course, as you know, uh, is perhaps the most important governing institution in this country. And yet people don't perhaps fully understand that. They don't focus on that. They don't kind of put the Supreme Court in its place in the system of governance of this country. Uh, And they don't seem to be very interested in the people who sit on the court. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about Canada's Supreme Court. And if you're saying, well, it's Canada's Supreme Court. I mean, I have no interest in that. Exactly. That's exactly the point. We are fascinated by the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, I bet you that many of you don't just have an opinion on the replacement of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a probably a passionate opinion on it. And yet we don't care a whit seemingly about what happens on this side of the border. Philip Slayton is a lawyer. He is an author, has written the book, Mighty Judgment, How the Supreme Court of Canada Runs Your Life. He was a clerk at one time on the Supreme Court of Canada. And Philip, as we talk about the anonymity of our court and of our judges, I did wonder, does more interest, and we talked about the Americans as well, the American justices, does more interest and a brighter spotlight on the judges, do you believe, lead to more activist judges? Could this anonymity be working for us here in Canada? 
No, I don't really think that. I mean, and there's a very interesting phenomenon here, Scott, and it's this, that very often people say, well, if this particular judge is appointed, that he or she is known, let's say, to be conservative or liberal right. or whatever. And so you could expect a certain kind of judgment uh, to be forthcoming. But then when the judge is actually appointed, and in our system, they're there until age 75, although many retire before that, very often they, they confound the predictions. It turns out you know, the real lawyer or the real judge comes out. Now they're free to do whatever they want. So it's very difficult and hard to predict how judges will behave once they are appointed. But I don't think that an anonymity is a good thing. We live in a democratic society. I don't think people who decide very important questions for us, particularly when they are appointed and not elected, we had no say in these appointments. I don't think these people should be free from careful um, scrutiny. I don't think they should be very private, uh, uh, reclusive figures. I think they're, they're public figures, whether they like it or not, and they should behave that way and be treated that way. The fact that they are public figures, does anybody ever say no to a Supreme Court appointment? Or do, and, and this is the, here, here I am showing my lack of knowledge of this. Do judges apply for this, or are they tapped on the shoulder and said, we want you to serve? Well, I think it's a bit, a bit of both. I mean, you can certainly apply, but it's, you know, it's one of those things where if you, if, if you have to apply, you're not going to get the job because it's already decided <laughs> okay. you're going to get it. Um, but um, yeah, yes, to answer your question, yes, it, it has happened from time to time that people who've been off the job for various reasons have turned it down. And one particularly interesting phenomenon in Canada is that many judges, once appointed, uh, do not stay until the age 75 when they have to leave. In the United States, you can stay until you die. And some judges live to ripe old age. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think, was 87 when she died. Uh, but many, in our system, many judges leave ahead of time. And it's always puzzles me somewhat because it's a highly prestigious position. It's the pinnacle of a legal career. And yet people leave, tend to leave, many leave before they have to. And I've often wondered why that is. Maybe the job isn't quite as interesting and exciting as they expected. And by the way, it's a hell of a lot of hard work. It's tough being a judge, a lot of work. And, and it's not a very social occupation either. A lot of it is sitting in your chambers by yourself, reading books and writing. And sometimes that could get tedious. You imply, or maybe more than imply, that our court is um, is apolitical or more apolitical, more non-political than the American would be. Is that a fair reading of what you said? Yes, I think it is. I mean, it's unpredictable. That's the first point. Perhaps you can't always predict what's going to happen. But I think yes, our court and the individual judges on it are far less driven, if driven at all, by political ideology. Whereas that's not the case in the United States. Now, why is that? I think partly it's because the United States, as we all know and have seen recently, is a very fractured society in many ways. Whereas our society is not that fractured at all. So there's. You know, there aren't sides to line up on judicially in Canada, although there are in the United States. For example, the United States, the famous abortion decision of Roe v. Wade is always the litmus test when someone's being considered to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Are they for it or are they against it? We have no such ideological tests in this country. It, which which surprises me in a sense, because as you mentioned a few moments ago, these judges are appointed by prime ministers. And I have to assume that whichever prime minister is in power, when he or she sees an opportunity to fill a seat on the Supreme Court, would want to plug someone in there who is going to go along with their political views. I can't believe that Justin Trudeau is going to pick someone who, for example, is staunchly conservative or Stephen Harper was going to take someone who was way on the left. 
Yes, I think that's probably true. I mean, but again, it's unpredictable because Stephen Harper, for example, appointed, forget, I think at one time, there was about six of the nine judges were Stephen Harper appointments. And people even talked about the Harper court, the idea being that the judges would you know, echo his thinking, mirror what he wanted to do. But it didn't turn out that way at all, partly for the reason I gave before, I think. Once, once appointed, judges may turn out to be not quite what they were expected. Uh, I mean, when, when Dwight D. Eisenhower appointed the governor of California to be chief justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, thinking he was a, Earl Warren was a staunch Republican, would toe the Republican line, it turned out he didn't do that at all. And Dwight Eisenhower later said that appointing Earl Warren chief justice of the United States was the biggest mistake he made while president. So there's an element of unpredictability. But I would say in this country, there, are, there is not the ideological cleavage, there is not the ideological battles that tend to drive so much, unfortunately, uh, judicial appointments in the United States. What about the law that we have here, though? I, I can't remember. Is it the Supreme Court Act or the Supreme Court law that says uh, three of the judges must be from Quebec? Does that not politicize things in some way, or is that not is that not an issue? I don't think it's really an issue. I mean, there's an obvious reason for that requirement. Uh, Quebec has a somewhat different private law system than the rest of Canada, a civil law system as opposed to a common law system. And there are political reasons for it, too. That is the only actual appointment geographic appointment requirement in the Supreme Court Act. But by tradition, there are so many seats go to Ontario, one goes to the West, one goes to the Atlantic provinces, and so on. And that's been pretty carefully adhered to for a long time now. and doesn't seem to be particularly controversial. I mean, one of maybe the biggest point, Scott, is that there's very little controversy on any grounds surrounding our court, whereas there's a lot of controversy on Absolutely. any grounds surrounding the United States um, court. Well, listen, and we're going to be hearing endless stories about the Supreme Court battle, you know, for the new justice and everything else. And again, next time one of ours comes up, it'll be a little blip and no one will pay attention. And I think think that's unfortunate. Uh, Philip Slayton, uh, really appreciate it. His book is Mighty Judgment, How the Supreme Court of Canada Runs Your Life. If this is something that you've suddenly went, ah, you know what? Yeah, I don't know anything about it. Well, there you go. Chance to broaden your horizons a little. Philip, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. A pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was on the, I was on, not the YouTube, that, no, how to sound old. I was on the YouTube. No, no, I was on YouTube the other day watching something. I have no idea what it was. I can't remember. We all do this. You go on there and then it's just mindless. And I fell victim to what you probably do too, the YouTube rabbit hole, where you start by watching something you had intended to see. And then all of a sudden something else grabs your attention and you click on it and you watch it. And then there's something else. And pretty soon I am watching a Caucasian guy shock a bunch of people in Chinese restaurants by speaking perfect Mandarin. They had no idea. They didn't expect it at all. And all of a sudden out it blurts from his mouth and the look on their face is hilarious. It's amazing. And I'm got to be honest, I'm not entirely sure why it was so intriguing, but I didn't just stick with it and watch that one. I watched a bunch of other similar videos by the same guy. And that is when I got to the one that really caught my attention. Because this same guy who had shocked all these Chinese people by speaking their language decided that he was going to learn Hindi. But he wasn't just going to learn Hindi. He was going to learn it in 24 hours and then go and speak it with people in New York City who speak that language. And I look at it, yeah, okay, that's ridiculous. That's impossible. Apparently not. Apparently not. Watch the video. It, it happened. My question was, how could this be done? 
Well, there's only one way to find out, and that's to bring him on here and talk about it. His name is Arie Smith. Um, you may know him better. His his name, he goes by Shoma, or you'll find him online on YouTube. Um, all kinds of videos of him doing this. Uh, Arie, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you having me on. I must say that when I got sit thinking about doing this, you do frighten me a little bit because I took French in school, like so many people up here in Canada. I took French in school for like 12 years and I'm still terrible at it. And you sat down to work on a language for 24 hours and nail it. I, I'm a little fearful that you are so far ahead of me in the language department that, I would, that we're going to be on different planes here, nonetheless. Um, before we get well, to all that, what? though, go ahead. It, yeah, so if I can interject there, I mean, I spent in high school and middle school, I must have spent like a combined total of like 10 years studying Latin. Um, and like, I, to this day, I don't, I don't remember a whit of it. Like, it's, it's, it's all about the technique. And, you know, we can get into this more later. But like, um, yeah, it, it's definitely not just you. I think the way that schools teach languages is totally off. <laughs> well, maybe there's something to that. Before we get to that, though, explain to me as best you can, because I mean, you have literally hundreds of millions of views of your videos. Explain to me why you think that people find them so engaging. What is it that about watching someone talk to someone else in a language they weren't expecting? What makes that so interesting? Because it does. Yeah. I, so, so, you know, it is interesting because when I first started doing this type of video, I, I originally, um, you know, I decided to upload one day a video of just me buying stuff in Chinatown in Chinese uh, and I, I, I wasn't expecting it to go viral either, but then, um, you know, as, as things sometimes happen, it did. And, um, the, but the more I've made, the more I've made these videos, the more I've kind of come to like sort of this realization of why it's interesting to people. I, I think, I think the, I think the key is like, you know, everyone's had the experience of going into a Chinese restaurant and uh, everyone in America, right. Or, or Canada, um, and ordering in, you know, in like, in like English, right. And, and maybe having some difficulties understanding people and like, you know, the person maybe doesn't speak great, great English. And, you know, you try to order a little bit of stuff, but, but, but kind of the idea of somebody being able to do like a non-Chinese person being able to do that in Chinese is just like, it's like a superpower, right? It's almost like, um, it is. it's just like really interesting secret. And, you know, you see that also reflected in movies and popular culture, like, um, the movie, uh, the movie Limitless with, with Bradley Cooper, um, where he, uh, you know, he like takes this magical pill that makes him super smart and, uh, he can suddenly bust that perfect Mandarin with his date at the restaurant, you know? And, um, I, I think it's, it's, it's this idea of like a secret superpower that, that, that attracts people. Well, and, and it wouldn't be shocking if you had broken out Italian or if you had broken out German or something else, but it, somehow, you know, somehow the idea of a guy and people can go online and see what you look like, um, that someone who looks like you or like me would be speaking such good Mandarin that even Mandarin speakers go, wow, you're really good. That just seems so out there. Yeah. I mean, but you know, it, it does, it, it, the interesting part about this is like, it seems, it seems kind of strange. But for me now, it's like the most, it's like the most normal thing in the world. Like I've gone from, you know, from just doing this with Chinese to doing this with a variety of languages. And, uh, you know, like I, I've just, it's just kind of opened a world for me. Like there's no reason why, um, you know, you have to restrict yourself to the standard, like, 
you know, Spanish, French, mm-hmm. German when, 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 when learning new languages. And, and it can really open up like a whole, like a whole, whole set of new worlds and new experiences for people, I think. Okay, so for people to understand, and for me to understand as well, um, you didn't, as you just said, you, you studied Latin, didn't come easy, maybe the yeah. school way the school teaches or whatever, but you got into this, you really learned Chinese because you spent a year over there, right? So th- there, there is at least a foundation here of being immersed into the language to be able to at least get started in this. Yeah. Uh, so, so the way that I got started with Chinese, though, was not, like, I had studied, I had studied prior to going to China. So, um, you know, I spent about, I spent about maybe a year. Um, I never like measuring, measuring time in terms of like, like years. Cause it's always, it's always like how much time per day did you actually spend studying? But, um, but regardless, I spent, you know, prior to going to China, I spent maybe about a year studying. Um, and, uh, I mean, I do think, I do think that it definitely helps to live, to live in the country where you're like, who is, whose target language you're learning. But you know, obviously, like right now, that's that's difficult. And, and, you know, I've spent I've spent the past the past year or two just learning these languages from my from my apartment. But did that when you my before New you, York City apartment, I should add. Yeah. But but before you went, was it easy? Did it come easy to you or was it a struggle at first? Because for a lot of people, learning a new language is just torture oh, trying to do it. Yeah. No, of, of course, it was difficult. So so I think that I think that, you know, I, in my videos, I definitely try to make it like I, I, I try to cut out the like, you know, I can't I can't make it like a 24 hour video where it's just me struggling with learning <laughs> language. Right. Like it's it's not it's definitely a lot more, to, you know, so I try to make it more of like this exciting montage of learning language. But but there's a lot of like there's a lot of sweat and tears that goes into it. You know, it's not it's not easy. And, I, and you know, frankly, I do think that. Um, I do think that it does come more easily to certain people than others, but, you know, at the same time, regardless of, regardless of your, of your, of your ability level, it's, it's still just like a flop, like, you know, learning any language well just takes a lot of time. And like, for me to get to the level where my Chinese is now, I mean, it's taken, it's taken just years of, of just like, you know, academic studying, but then also like using it you know, on the street and like, you know, my wife is Chinese too. So, you know, we've been together for like a couple of years now and, and, you know, I speak with her every day and, and, and it's just all, all of this, like, you know, all these factors together, just, um, just like, it takes a lot of practice, a lot of work. All right. And so that's, that explains the Chinese and and you speak both Mandarin and Cantonese right now. I speak some Cantonese. Okay. All right. I won't say say that I speak fluent Cantonese, but basic. And you have, and there was another video I saw where you did a, a, a dialect, a, a, a different Chinese dialect. I can't remember the name of it that you had also learned to, you know, to go in and talk to some people. Yeah, Fujonese. So I live. That, that's right. Yeah, I live right near New York City Chinatown. There, and there's, um, you know, people think of like, other people think of Chinese as like this big monolith, but the reality is, it's like linguistically as diverse, if not more diverse, as Europe. So you know, there's there's all these different Chineses floating around that um, that uh, people depending on depending on where you are in the Chinese speaking world people people speak different languages okay so there there's the foundation for people we've just sort of set the baseline here so you've got some well a good you know ability to speak different languages now but let's jump ahead to this idea of learning one in 24 hours because this is where my mind explodes and I don't quite get it because you decide for whatever reason or I can't remember what if you explained why or if it was just as on a whim but you said okay I'm going to speak Hindi I'm going to learn Hindi and I'm going to do it in 24 hours First of all, just so I understand this, this is legit, right? This is like, there's no funny stuff in the video. I mean, it, you legitimately did this in 24 hours. 
Yeah. Okay. Actually, I did it in less than 24 hours. It, 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 I mean, 24 <laughs> hours of... <laughs> so the Hindi Way to rub it about, in, yeah. <laughs> well, so the Hindi video was about 20 hours, but, um, but the, the, reason for the, Hindi, the reason for the Hindi video was that I had done a similar challenge with Korean, um, where I spent you know, 24 hours learning Korean and, um, and then did, did kind of the same thing. How do you even start? Like, if you're going to try and learn a language this quickly to the point where you can get out and talk with someone, how do you even begin? Well, yeah, so, you know, it's interesting. Like, like I kind of, um, like, I, I, think, I think that the, 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 the method, like, it's easy to, like, look at a video and be like, oh, you know, he's, he's like a genius. There's no way. But, like, when I, like, when I, it, like, in high school, I was just horrible with language. It's like, I, you know, with, with, with Latin, I mean, I was good at it, like, in an academic sense, but every time we'd have to read something, you know, I'd be looking up every other word. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like, um, like, the methods that I was using to learn just weren't, just weren't really there. And so what I've done, I, I've done this kind of, this, this, this challenge now for, for a, several, several languages, like five or six, and um, I've kind of, like, been, been, um, been getting the method down, you know, better and better each time I do it. And it's, essentially the way it works is like, I think about, I think about what, um, what I really want to say, you know, because it's not going to be of any help to me learning like the colors or like the numbers. If I know I'm going to be putting myself into a situation where I'm not going to use that stuff or like, it, it's not really going to be helpful for me to learn like the, the Devagari script to write Hindi if I'm not going to be actually doing any writing or reading. Right. So I take these like shortcuts to learn, to learn exactly what I know I'm going to, to, or obviously you can't know exactly what you need to learn, but you know, I try to target like a specific area of interest that, that I, that I'm more likely to want to use. Like if I know I'm going to go to a supermarket, like, okay, well, you know, I know, I know that there's certain words and vocabulary that I'm going to be more likely to use. Or like, you know, the other day I did this in, in like an, in an African market in New York city. And, um, you know, there were certain terms that I needed to know for that. Um, so, so I try to focus on specifically what I want, what I want to know. And then what I do is I just create like this little, this little library of sentences that, um, that I think are going to come in handy. And I just go over it with tutors, with like native speakers. And I, you know, I basically say like, how do I say this? Like starting with like the really basic stuff, like how do I say X, you know, in that language? And like that, I learned that sentence. And then I learned the sentence, I speak X language. And then I learned the sentence, do you speak X language? And then we speak X, you know? And so I just kind of, I just kind of like expand from there. Um, and then, you know, just like practice, practice and repeat. <laughs> but it's, but even yeah. if, even if that was, no, no, but even if you're saying, so as I'm listening to this, even if you're saying, okay, I'm going to learn and memorize a number of sentences and a number of key points, that's fine. That's a, that's a starting point. But in order to converse with someone, you also have to be able to understand what they're saying. So it can't just be about memorizing just certain phrases. You have to be able to pick up other stuff too. Well, you know, look, obviously there, there's a limit to how much you can learn, right? Like, I, you know, even like, even with the best study methods and the most intense concentration possible, you can only, you can only learn so much. You can only have like a very basic conversation with people after just 24 hours of studying. Um, but, uh, well, there's this kind of a caveat to that, which we can talk about later, but, um, but, uh, but I, I think that, I think that, um, um, you, yes, you obviously have to understand what people are saying, but, but 
that that's why I try to like when I'm learning, I try to just I, I basically just learn from by by speaking with other people from day one. Like I'm going into these tutors and I'm being like, hey, how do I say this? And then they say it, and I just try to listen and then repeat. So I'm I'm really I'm not I'm not memorizing phrases so much as so much as trying to have like a basic conversation. Like okay, I learn those few sentences and then I try to modify them. So if I know the word mm. for I can speak, you know maybe I can figure out how to ask, can you speak? And then and then we know the verb to speak. And if we know the verb to speak, then maybe we can swap it into another verb. So if we learn another verb, then you know we can swap it into sentences of similar structures. Um, and so you know we we just go on like that and we just kind of like dip all back and forth um, for, you know, for the, for the whole day. Once you, once you have understood a couple languages, are there, are there grammatical things that cross over from language to language, even languages that are not necessarily that you would not think are connected so that it makes it easier yeah. once you know one or two to pick up the third or the fourth? Yeah, it definitely does. I think beyond, like, I think learning multiple languages, like beyond, um, beyond, beyond just getting like improving your methods of study it also it also does help with exa- with exactly that like some languages are some languages have these features that are very like unique and 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 interesting that you that that if if you only speak english you look at that and be like wow that's really strange why why does language and it's going to take a while for you to wrap your head around that but if you have experience with other languages you can kind of think like you can use your experience in other languages to to give you like a um a mental foothold into what this other language is saying um so you know when i was learning hindi for example there are certain things in hindi that remind like even though there's really no relationship with with mandarin chinese there are some features of it that reminded me oh that's just like how mandarin does it you know and there's other features that are like oh that's exactly how spanish does it you know so that helped me learn Hmm. It, it helped me learn more quickly is what i would say it just, it, it, the other thing is that, that dawns on me as I watch this is there are even forgetting the words, leaving aside the words or the grammar or the structure, there are sounds that are made in different languages that we don't make in our language. And when we try to make yeah. them, we don't do it right, which, I mean, it throws an extra yeah. layer of complication into the whole thing. Right. Well, I, yeah, I would say, so I, for me, for me, like, um, you know, I, I, I think that people, I think that people tend to overestimate the importance of talent when it comes to learning languages. Like, like, I, I think that, um, I think that it's really more about like actually putting in the time and, um, you know, having, having the right motivation to learn it. But, um, the one, the one area where I do there, where, where I will say, um, I have somewhat of a talent in is being able to do the different sounds. Like, you know, I've always been good at accents and, and, and I've always liked trying to imitate, you know, sounds of different languages. So that, that tends to come a little more easily for me, but, um, but, but, but yes, I, like for sure, even for me, you know, that's, it, it's, it's definitely a struggle, right? Like some languages have these like wacky sounds where you're like, wow, yeah. how do they do that? And you know, it's just, it just takes like a while. Like you have to just listen to it like a whole bunch before it really sinks in. So for sure. Yeah, it's definitely an issue. I, what I'm amazed by is that, that I've heard of anyway, I know you teach, I know you, if people can go to your website and we'll give the website in a minute here, if they want to uh, be in touch or, or connect with you, but clearly you figured something out here. And we said right off the top that, you know, you and I both struggled with learning a language through the way they do it in schools. Clearly, maybe someone in the education system should be sitting down and talking with you and saying, look, we're not going to change everything, but maybe you're on to something here that we could use that would help people 
like you and me and many other people listening right now who never could figure it out. It sounds like you figured something out here that would help people. I mean, I think it's a travesty, like how much time gets wasted in the educational systems in uh, pretty much around the world with, with, with language teaching. Not, not that I think language is like a, a bad thing to learn. It's a great thing. It's a great thing to learn. Yeah. But I think, but I think that, that so much of the time we spend teaching kids in school how to learn is just wasted on these really, really ineffective methods. Like you open the textbook and you just memorize most of the words and like, but that's not how to learn. Like if I were, if I were to run, if I were running like a Spanish class right now in, in New York city, I, <laughs> I would be like, okay, there's going to be a teacher there for, for, you know, for, for asking questions or for like a little meditation, you know, mediation between students. But what I would do is just like, just throw out everything in the room and just give every kid an iPad connected to a student in Guatemala and you spend half an hour learning Spanish and then they spend half an hour learning English from you. So you do like this half and half trade off. And I guarantee you after seven years of that, there's no way you cut those kids come out of that experience not being fluent in Spanish. So like, whereas compared with the results now where you can sit in the classroom, you know, day to day for seven years in Spanish in like everybody in the U S learns Spanish, right? Kid, I, you know, I didn't, but, but most people do. But they can't speak any of it, you know, and I have no doubt, too, that if I went through that same experience, I would have no ability in Spanish now, even, right, just, just the same as with, like, Latin. Like, I've complete, like I can say, puer ama puelam, which is, like, one sentence that I learned in, in, in high school. But I went through AP Latin, I, you know, like, <laughs> like, I was reading, supposedly I was reading Virgil. In, in like 11, 11th or 12th grade. But, but you know, like if I had to Nothing open sticks. that now and look through it, it'd yeah. be completely gone. We only have a second or two left here. W with all these ones that you've learned in short order, do they stick? Like, can you still, can you still talk some Korean, even though it may have been weeks or months since you did that last or Hindi? Like, is that still somewhere in the brain or is it gone once that is over? So, some of it does. I, some of it sticks around. Um, you know, I can still say a couple things in, in, in Korean. Um, but, but, but yeah, you know, language is definitely one of these things where like you have to, you have to, you have to practice it to keep, to keep it around. And I think once you get it to like a, a level of fluency, it's a little different where you can not practice for, for years and then pick it, pick it back up very quickly. But, but um, yeah, it, it definitely, just like with working out, you know, requires some maintenance. Um, I, I would encourage people to go watch some of your videos. Uh, they may be ending up spending an evening sitting in front of it because for some reason, and again, I, I look, you do a great job. It's, it's fascinating in a weird way because I never would have expected watching someone talk would just be something you, but it, you do, you get caught up in this. Um, if they want to look on YouTube and they really want to find you quickly, type in clueless white guy orders in perfect Chinese. That'll get you there. Um, uh, you can also go to your website, which is xiaomanyc.com, xiaomanyc.com. I'll say that again in a minute, just so people can get a pen. Uh, listen, it, it's fascinating stuff. I really appreciate you taking the time because I, I say, I, I, you and I both, um, language is not being a thing once upon a time. Uh, you've, you've almost motivated me to try to do this. And I, and I think on my vacation, I may actually try and see what I can figure out. But I, I don't think I'll be doing as well as you, but it's, uh, it's really cool to watch. And I appreciate the time today. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much, Scott. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully your, your listeners, um, you know, I mean, would like to, would like to, I, you know, I can never tell somebody to be, to be like, to like go and, and do something. Cause not everybody really wants to learn a language. You know, I don't think that everybody needs to learn another language, but, 
But if you are, like, if you if you're in the position of like, oh, I've always wanted to do it, but but just haven't had the motivation for whatever reason, like, I don't know. I, for me, it's changed my life in so many ways. And and if if that's if that like describes you, then I would definitely say to 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 go and and give it a shot. Uh, once again, go on YouTube and type in "clueless white guy orders in perfect Chinese." That's just one of them, but that'll get you into the into the rabbit hole, and you can go from there. Aria, thanks so much for the time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Scott. That is, uh, it's great stuff. I, I say I spent way too much time watching on YouTube the other day, uh, that stuff and, and it fascinating and I can't completely explain why, but just, it really is, uh, it really is fun to watch. The Scott Radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley show podcast is available on Apple podcast, Google podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.